listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 4th of January. Now, as shipping costs for goods travelling through the Red Sea are rising sharply, we took a look at the impact that it's having on residents here in the UAE looking to move home. We spoke to Stefania Sierra, who is General Manager for DASA International Movers. She had all the facts and figures. Meanwhile, nursery enrolments in Dubai have risen by 15% in the last year. We spoke to Dr. Abdullah Al-Karam, the Director General of the Emirates Private Education Authority, all about what these numbers tell us about the demographics of Dubai. As cybersecurity experts warn about yet another style of AI-based scam, Help AG's Chief Technology Officer talked us through spear phishing and why it's such a concern. And we also forecast the future of tech and robotics in 2024. That was with expert Dr. Samir Kishore from the Virtual Reality Experience Lab at Middlesex University, Dubai. Meanwhile, if your New Year's resolution is to read more books, we found a way to buy brand new novels on the cheap. That was with Andrew Yap from Big Bad Wolf Books. And we kept the focus on reading as the globe celebrates World Braille Day. And we spoke to the team at the Mohammed bin Rashid Library about the provisions that they have in place for the visually impaired. Meanwhile, Robbie Greenfield brought us up to date on all the latest sporting headlines, including that hard-fought darts match. Uh, lovely to have you with us. It is the 4th of January. Lots of really interesting stories making headlines that we're going to be covering over the show on the next uh, over the next three hours. And the first one is a story that we've been covering on Dubai Eye extensively over the last few weeks. Actually, in particular on the Business Breakfast, I was presenting alongside Tom Urquhart just before Christmas. And that is when these problems in the Red Sea first started. Um Obviously, when we're on the business breakfast, you talk about, you know, the impact that it has on the oil price. Um, But we also talked about the impact it's having on the world's busiest trade routes, because it's not just oil that goes through the Suez Canal. It's also all sorts of goods. And as a consequence of the unrest there, many ships are choosing to travel around Africa and the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, It is estimated to cost a million dollars more per journey for every ship that doesn't go through Suez and instead goes all the way around Africa. And as you can imagine, that's obviously going to have a huge impact on the price of goods. But what is really interesting is that it's actually already having an impact on residents here in the UAE who are looking to move home. You know, when you get that massive shipping container and stuff your entire life into it. Uh, but it's but not just people who are moving out of the UAE, but people who are actually moving here as well. And of course, um, it's very popular to move here into into Dubai and into the wider UAE at the moment. We've seen on the message groups, love a message group on Facebook, you know, the sort of chatting groups. And, and on one of those, several Dubai residents have actually reported extra charges of up to 6,000 dirhams on their shipment home. 
They've also been warned of really big delays. Uh, really interesting story, one we wanted to get into because we just didn't expect the the Red Sea sort of unrest to have an, uh, this fast an impact, I suppose, on, on you and I, on, on the consumers. Let's find out more. Uh, joining me now in the studio is Stefania Sierra. She's the general manager of DASA International Movers. She's done us a huge favour of coming into the studio. Good morning to you. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. Thanks for inviting us. And Happy New Year. I'm rolling with Happy New Year till the end of this week. And then I think it's too much. I think then it it goes on a bit. Um, Tell me a little bit, Stefania, because you are very much at the sharp end of this. Have you already seen costs for shipping rise? We have already seen costs for shipping rise. We have uh, tried to communicate to our customers as soon as we have been made aware. You can expect a rise in uh, container prices um, between $1,000 and $1,500 on a 20-foot containers and between $2,000 and $3,000 on a 40-foot container. What type of site? I, I'm terrible at visualising these containers. So if you've got a four-bedroom house and you're moving, which one of those would you use? Four-bedroom house, you probably need a 40-foot container. The big one. Yeah. The big one. Okay. That is a, but there that will is also be other costs that might not be uh, immediately comes to mind, which we will see uh, in the next few weeks. They will, we can expect the merge and the tension because uh, the lack of vessels will make uh, the container sit in the port longer. We will also get to an equipment imbalance uh, where we will struggle to find empty containers. Uh, obviously, increasing the transit times will also make... Um, an impact on the, on some um, on certain containers docks where container will pile up. Uh, some ports have been struggling historically with availability of truck drivers, so it will have a domino effect uh, on many parts of the logistic chain. This is so interesting. You suddenly realize you know all the little bits in the link don't yes. you because when we just get the guys and then you load up the shipment you don't know what's going on at the sharp yes. end of things you don't you don't get this idea of the the ships building up and um i mean how about delays it, it sounds like potentially we are going to see quite a lot of delays as a consequence as well we are seeing delays on boat um going out and coming in and even if the situation was to clear 100% tomorrow, we can expect this delay to extend for a further six to eight weeks before we go back to some sort of normality. Is that really simple delays because they're having to travel further around yes. the Cope of Good Hope? Or, uh, yes, that is the, that's that's the, the reason. Yeah, increasing the transit time means they will de- be delayed on the next arrival port. So uh, the cargo that was expected to be offloaded at the port will be delayed, but also the cargo that was expected to be loaded on the vessel will be delayed. Is it worse in either direction? So if you're moving from here home somewhere, is that is that more delayed or less delayed than people potentially moving to the It will the be UA? the same delays. We were expecting containers um, docking in these weeks and we have been advised that they will be delayed for a month. For a month? Wow, because that's just how long they're going to be at sea. uh, Is that likely to have an impact on ports here? If they're not seeing the ships they're expecting, will they be losing money potentially? No, I I think the ports will eventually catch up. The ports that will will be more concerned are some European ports, where historically there has been uh, uh, more of an impact. Dubai is a big country. The port is very receptive. I don't think they will suffer major 
uh, impact on their operation. So they've got the sort of flexibility yeah. and the capacity. That's, I mean, that is also very interesting indeed. So do you think that people should take out potentially more insurance on their shipment than normal? Now, I've got experience of this. And in fact, my producer, Jen, has got experience of this as well. We have two completely opposing sides of the story. So I no longer take out insurance on my shipments because I sort of don't believe in insurance and, and you know, I, I'm willing to, to take fate as it comes. I don't think Jen will ever not take out insurance on a shipment because she actually lost one of her uh, shipments in a very, very unfortunate accident that we all know very, very rarely happens. But as a consequence, she did lose quite a lot of her possessions. Um, You know, if you hear about ships coming under fire in the Red Sea, that would obviously make you feel nervous that you could lose your goods. Should people take out more insurance? I don't think people should take more value of insurance. People should take always insurance on the actual value of their shipment. You okay. don't insure for a highest value because your goods are not worth more just because there's a higher risk. But you should always take insurance, not just because you want to cover the possession of your goods, but also because you want to cover your responsibility as a shipper towards the other cargo and towards the shipping line, which is called general average. And that will come in place if the vessel has a delay or if part of the cargo gets sacrificed, let's say, to save uh, the old cargo all the owner of the cargo will be responsible. So you're not just insuring your goods, you're also insuring your liability towards uh, the carrier and other cargoes that you will have to pay in case there's an accident at sea. It's very complicated, isn't it, the insurance with shipping? So the bottom line is always take insurance and insurance should be the value uh, of the replacement of your items at destination. Have we got any end in sight at the moment for this this problem? I mean, obviously, you you guys in the industry must be keeping a very close eye on the news at the moment. We are, and we are in touch with the six major carriers. They all have stopped their operation in the Red Sea. They are all going um, through the Cape of um, Good Hope. And they, uh, everyone has big interest of this situation to be uh, to come to an end. Major countries are involved. Um, US Navy was involved. So it is everyone's best interest. For, uh, after so many years of struggles in the logistic industry, we had come to a, some sort of normality. And this now has been disrupted quite suddenly. We were not expecting this. This was absolutely not foreseeable. Very, very tricky situation for for everyone involved in that logistics. And and of course, Dubai as a massive port here. um, I imagine we are going to feel the impact in the UAE as well, potentially. Everywhere the logistics will be affected. Now, we obviously uh, look after personal effect, which is something which is very sentimental. But don't forget that most of the cargo of these uh, ships is commercial cargo, high-value items. Uh, there will be raw materials to, um, to keep industries going. So the effect of delays is not just on, on you not having uh, your couch. It's on companies not being able to keep on manufacturing. That is very true. 
Although I have to say that certainly the people on the Facebook messaging <laughs> groups not yet thinking about the, the increasing price of a future car potentially, but wanting their picture frames and their sofa and their telly uh, <laughs> to arrive as quickly as possible. Uh, Stefania, thank you so much. Really interesting interview. Fascinating to hear about the, uh, the, diff- the, the way the different dominoes connect yeah. in the logistics chain. I think there's a lot of details there that none thank of us really... Thank you for really... covering this topic. I think it's everyone's interest now. It absolutely is. So thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you. That's Stefania Sierra, who is the general manager of DASA International Movers, uh, giving us all sorts of fascinating details here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Thank you very much for all your comments coming through. I'll come to those in just a few minutes. But uh, we're going to turn our attention to another fascinating topic for the next few minutes because there is nothing we like more on Dubai Eye than a spot of proxy data. Uh, in fact, in particular, Brandy Scott on The Business Breakfast uh, is the queen of the proxy data. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of those things like that you use when you're trying to figure out, for example, why the traffic is so bad. You know, you look at the population numbers or you look at the the number of people signing up for a Tisalat or new Virgin mobile contracts and you go, look, see, that is why the population is increasing and that's why we can't uh, move down Hesse Street. Uh, and certainly the latest data on Dubai's early learning centres is supporting that argument of population increase because they're showing a 15% increase in the number of children enrolled. And that means a lot more children going to nursery, but it also echoes the 12% record enrolment growth reported by Dubai's private schools earlier this year. Now, like I said, the numbers raise all sorts of questions, including, you know, what does it mean about the choices that working parents are taking when it comes to their children? Does it mean, for example, more women are working? Does it mean that more families are choosing nurseries over nannies? Uh, Does it mean that there are more young families here than ever before? Let's get into the details of the figures first, though. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Dr. Abdullah Al-Karam. He is the Director General of the Knowledge and Development Authority in Dubai. That's the KHDA. Sir, thank you so much for joining me on Teams. How are you? Happy New Year. Good morning, Georgia. I think the uh, Happy New Year. Uh, these are really good times, great news. I like your analysis about the early years. So you basically took half of my, my answers right oh, away. No. So well done, well done, well done. Oh, well, the main thing is, is that it just raises so many questions because you, you know, you, there are so many potential trends hidden in these numbers. Let's get into the numbers themselves first. You know, from your perspective, how significant is this increase in the early years roll call? I mean, as you said it earlier, you know, a few months ago, we released the 12% of the school, which basically validates everything you said about the traffic and more people. But for early years, is the following is this means there are more people moving to Dubai. Actually, there are more families moving to Dubai and more significantly, more families with younger kids that are moving to Dubai. And that what contribute to the to, to, to the 15 percent. But I think the other side of this is also, as you as you talked about, is there is a social change is happening in place. The perception about early years is not anymore it's an option anymore. I think I think people either going to work 
or believing in how important is early years, especially post-pandemic, I think that's also driving more people here in Dubai to putting their kids when they are two years or, or less into early year center. And I think the, these two factors, the, the more people coming into Dubai, the more family, but also the more believe and trust and the value of having a kid on an educational setting, these two factors are contributing to the, to the, to the 15% growth we had last year. I mean, it really does speak to uh, parents' confidence in the nursery schools, doesn't it? Because, I mean, the, the early years, uh, the early childhood sector itself only recently came under the jurisdiction of the KHD. I understand that was back in 2021. But, but parents clearly trust the, school, the nurseries. They clearly trust the KHDA because otherwise they wouldn't be putting their young children in their care. Yeah, and I think what, what we've seen also is they, they, they trust, they believe, but I think we learned through the pandemic and, and, and you know, there, there was about a year or two that nurseries were not open. So kids who were two years old or three years old did not go to, to early years. So when they start enrolling in school, and we know this from talking to principals of the school, they had last year kids who went straight into year one so they skip the two years of school of, of early years, and they can see clearly the difference between those who have gone in the past to early years and those who didn't. So I think the parent sees it, the school sees how important it is. And I think that is the sort of the change we see forward going and, and, and the numbers of 15% will, will also continue to go like that because they believe that the kids who are, you know, a year or two, they need to be on that social system. And, and, and I think that that's what's behind those well, these numbers. I'm really interested that, um, that the nurseries basically have capacity for this increase in children, this, this 15% increase. Uh, in, in that way, the sector must be incredibly important for the city's future plans, it, right? <laughs> absolutely. And look, I mean, the numbers are there. I mean, there's about 27 nurseries opened last year. So we take an average, like the numbers about two, two, two per month almost. Because the time to open a nursery is not like the time to open a school. You need two years for school. Nursery could be less than a year. But I think the point you're making there about the city this is very important. Back in the days, we compared Dubai to business and economical cities. You know, you have London, New York, Singapore, Hong Kong. And actually, we realized we're a little bit less in terms of the number or the percentage of the younger kids who are supposed to be in early years and who are really in early years. We are less. And the reason why there are more social contribution, you talked about earlier, about, you know, maybe they're staying at home because they have extended family, they have nannies, they have other cares, where we don't see that on the other cities in the world. But now I think our, our, our ambition and target to have nurseries everywhere. So, yes, we prefer nurseries to be within the school or close to school, but there are neighborhoods where there is no schools. So I always said, if I see... Uh, a swap, if I see spinach, I really would love to see nursery next to it because parents really need the proximity. Nobody want to put their kids in the backseat and drive them for 20 minutes. So I think the ambition is to have nurseries everywhere because a proximity is very, very important to the parents. What is also interesting is that it sort of indicates a slight population bulge in children, because if you've got just 12% in the private schools, but you've got 15% in the nurseries, give it another two years, and that 15% increase of children that we've seen this year, they're going to need school places, aren't they? 
Yes, yes, it is. And I think that's where when you talk to school, I just came from a visit from, from, from a school who just, you know, has been rated outstanding. It was very good for a while. We just rated outstanding. So my visit this morning, when the principal had told me that their early year sitting or their, their, uh, their, their FS1, FS2 were really great and outstanding, but it was only a matter of time for the whole school to become outstanding. So that talks to your point. There is more kids going to FS1, FS2. So, and that will trickle down, not only from the size of the school, but also from the quality of the school. Do we have a sense of the demographics behind this rise? Do we know what nationalities are coming into the country? All over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I bet if there is a country we don't have a teacher from or a student from. And I think, I think this is something very important to us because... For the last two years, if you talk to every school, if you talk to every nursery, it has not been such an easy task to attract the best teachers in the world to come to Dubai. Post-pandemic, everybody wants to come to Dubai. Everybody wants to teach to Dubai, whether younger kids or older kids. So Dubai accessing the best teachers from, from the globe, because also for the teachers, when they come to Dubai, they love it because they're not, taking, they're not teaching one nationality or, or one mother language you know, or culture for that sake. So I think having it to be that place where, you know, you come here to teach the rest of the world in one city. I, I mean, it does sound absolutely, uh, it, I mean, it must be very, very exciting to work in the education sector here. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball, look ahead into 2024. What are you expecting uh, for the next 12 months? Uh, uh, more growth? We're going to get bigger and we're going to get better. We already have shown that that last year we had 12% for school, 15% for, for early years. But we also showed our international assessment. For the first time, Dubai cracked in the top 10, at least in the mathematic assessment, top 15, top 14, top 13, and, and math and reading. So versus 15 years ago, we were somewhere about the 40s. So with, with time, we are getting bigger, but certainly we are getting better. So 2024, You'll get more schools, you'll get more nurseries, you'll get more choices, you'll get nurseries closer to home, you get schools who are where where good and very good and now very good outstanding. So it's it's very it's very um, bright picture for all for all the parents and the teachers. So it's been a great pleasure having you join us on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Absolutely fascinating to talk demographics and education with you. Uh, so it's, thank you very much indeed. You've just been listening to the voice of Dr. Abdullah Al-Karam. He is Director General of the KHDA, which is Knowledge and Development Authority for Dubai. They're in charge of all the private schools and nurseries here. And it's been a, a great pleasure to have your time. Thank you very much indeed, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. Good day. Thank you. Good day to you. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Plenty more news, analysis and comment coming your way over the next two hours or so. But we're actually going to turn our attention to um, one of those sort of celebratory days right now. We don't normally sort of slavishly follow them, but I wanted to mark World Braille Day to celebrate the importance of Braille as a means of communication, in part because it turns out that the Muhammad bin Rashid Library has got a really fantastic section 
deliberately designed to help visually impaired and blind people access books. Now, if you haven't heard of Braille, I haven't really given it a great deal of thought for years, I have to be honest. Um, It was a, a system created by Louis Braille and it instantly opened up reading and writing for blind people because you can read through your fingertips, essentially. But I have no idea, for example, of how easy it is to come by Braille books, how expensive they are, whether or not they're, they're written in lots of different languages. So I really wanted to get the guys from the Mohammed bin Rashid Library into the show. And I'm delighted to say I am now joined by one of their senior librarians, Shatha Nasa, who's joined us on Teams. Good morning, Shatha. Happy New Year. How are you? Hi, good morning. Happy New Year. I'm well. How are you? I'm very well indeed. It's lovely to have you join us. Tell me a little bit more about exactly what content you have at the library for people of uh, both people of determination and also for the the visually impaired. Uh, So the library features about 2,500 titles in Braille, which are, yeah, which are about 500 in Arabic. And then 2000, about 2000 in English. When I say Arabic and English, I mean because the books we have have English language and then a page next to it with Braille. So I can read it, you can read it and the visually impaired can read it. That is really interesting. I mean, uh, tell me, tell me how you get hold of those books. Is it difficult to find them or, or has, uh, has the, the printing press come on to such an extent that, you know, that you can just print any book in Braille? So in general, yeah, it's a bit difficult to come by them, but we're lucky. Uh, we get, uh, being, you know, this uh, public library, we get lots of donations. So we collaborate with people like um, Dar Absar and Jordan, who specialize in, in books for the visually impaired, uh, Los Angeles Braille Institute, Zayed Higher Organization for People of Determination. So we get lots of donations. I'm very interested to know why the library, I mean, I... I can understand why the library wanted to make itself, you know, welcoming to people from every background and, you know, people of determination, you know, every type of person. But but why in particular this this special section for the visually impaired? You wouldn't have thought there was much of a call for it. Uh, You know, um, I think I disagree in the sense that it's not just important. I think it's part of um, the the literacy strategy of the UAE, uh, which was aimed to making reading a cultural value Mm -hmm. for everyone. You know, for for us, for the visually impaired, for people of determination, that's why we have a whole section and not just a whole section. The entire library uh, sort of is built around empowering and integrating people of determination into society, Um, be it, you know, our audiobooks, our uh, wheelchair accessibility and the most important thing being our knowledge content, our resources, so I think it's uh, I think it's super important that we have these Braille books and services. It just reflects the library's vision, strategy, and and just the role in general as a public library. The library's been open for I mean it's well over a year now. It must be sort of coming into eighteen months. Uh, does it feel established? Does it feel like it's it's a key part of the community now, both for you know p- people of every background, but also people uh, of determination. Honestly, I think being the biggest library in the region, I think it's now an essential part of uh, of that community. You I know, have... it's uh, sorry, um, carry on. It's our social. Sorry, it's our social. I think it's our social responsibility. You know, to uphold this this right to uh, to knowledge and accessibility. Really fantastic to speak to you, Shatha. Thank you so much for joining us on, on this world. 
Braille Day to tell us about the, the various different facilities that you have available there at the Mohammed bin Rashid Library. I, I don't know if you, you've seen it, if you, if you know where it is, but I think it looks like an open book. Um, it's actually on the creek as you, as you head towards Dubai Festival City, if you, as you're heading towards the airport. I think it looks like an open book, but I think it's actually meant to be the plinth. In fact, Shatha, are you still on the line? Is it meant to be an open book or is it meant to be the plinth that you it's put a, a book? Turkish lectern, like a Turkish lectern. Turkish. So it's, it's, yeah, the book stand. Yeah, it's, I mean, I still think it looks like an open book, but but it works either way. It's a very beautiful space and well worth a visit. And, and it's completely open to everyone, isn't it? 100% open and uh, free of charge, no reservation needed. Even our workshops and our, um, our activities and events and things like that, you just need to register, but uh, you just, yeah, walk in. Fantastic. Really lovely to hear from you. Uh, Shatha Nasa there, one of the senior librarians there at the Mohammed bin Rashid Library. Certainly well worth a visit. Welcome back to the agenda. We're going to talk tech for the next half hour. A couple of really interesting topics for you as we enter the new year. Cybersecurity experts now warning us about yet another style of scam. This time it actually involves generative AI and it's called spear phishing. It's much more targeted and therefore often much more effective. Uh, Let's find out a bit more about it. I'm joined in the studio now by Nikolai Soling, who is Chief Technology Officer at Help AG. Now, they are the cybersecurity arm of E&D Enterprise, um, which you might also formally know as sort of Etisalat Digital, but but it's known as E&D Enterprise now. Nikolai, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year and thanks for having me on. I know it is a happy new year, but 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 it does seem like every single month we come up with a new type of uh, phishing scam. I think it was about maybe it was back in November we talked about quishing, which was very exciting. That's where you use QR codes to try and target people. What is this spear phishing? I've already said it had nothing to do with killing dolphins, which has already upset many people who are listening this morning about why I even brought dolphins into the conversation. Um, but yes, spear phishing. What is it? It's actually not a new thing. So oh, the spear. Fishing is, is kind of like the evil twin of, of, of normal fishing. So it's much more targeted. It's it's really attacks where they are highly uh, adopted to the person that that uh, that that is, is trying to be 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 attacked. Um, so typically involving information about the individual um, or the organization in order try to try to get get access to to whatever data the attackers are after. So they'd come for me. They'd find out the names of my children, and they would think maybe those are her passwords. Yeah, Incorrectly, can... by the way. Ha <laughs> 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 uh, good, good, good. Good. You listen to our our topic on password uh, passwords, but um, no, it could be stuff like uh, it. It could be that it's a person who's trying to develop a relationship uh, to uh, the, the the other party and thereby through that relationship trying to fish information out of, 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 of the individual. Um, it could also be to get someone to install malicious software on the machine if, if that machine has access to to sensitive content as well. And doing that, uh, utilizing information like it could be that uh, you have posted information on social media and... Uh, about your whereabouts or vacation or 
even utilizing information about you. you you mentioned children as an example right so utilizing all of that in order to build that relationship so that you trust the person on the other hand and that's typically what what spear phishing very very um targeted um uh, attacks on 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 the individual as a consequence it it's probably quite effective horribly effective i imagine how is um how is ai giving this an, an extra twist for example well you know ai is one of those things that really changed the economy of cybersecurity and performing attacks as well so the whole element of automation and capability that large language models gives to attackers changes the economy of of how an attack happens right and what i always look at is anything that can change the economics of 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 an attack why do we see such an increase in phishing attacks in the last year it's because it became easier it became more cost effective for attacker to perform those phishing attacks and create them much more professionally that's the same thing that's happening with spear phishing attacks because what it allows attackers to do is to take information that you already posted online uh, potentially in your social media platforms in information about you know um, um, that you have around uh, that specific individual and then utilizing automation and machine learning models in order to create these kind of of uh, of, of of content that's required in order to build that relationship between two parties so do you actually mean things like writing emails for example but they can use the large language models to just you just plug in write write me a friendly email that talks about x y and z absolutely that's what's happening with large language models already also in a good sense right those that's what you see all of the co-pilots that's coming out on the different kind of email applications that we have right now that will help you to say well i want to write a an email to a person but it has to be in business english and and these kind of things so it will help you write that email for you um and and that's exactly the same thing that's happening on the on the attacking side i have to say that having received several press releases which i can almost 100% guarantee were written by chatgpt or something like that i would suggest that the large language models have some way to go when it comes to writing press press conferences but press releases but clearly they're getting it right with these sort of more colloquial email sort of correspondence i mean as a consequence do we need to seriously think about the way in which we're developing these large language models the way we're developing ai if indeed it can be you know turned into a tool for such nefarious purposes. Yes, and that's happening in the industry right now. Mm. So in ge- in general there's a lot of con- conversations around how do you train language models as well. There's also copyright element of it. Uh, so many of the That's loomed very large recently, hasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and that's because these models need data in order to be trained and how do you get that data? You let you you get it from the internet. So first of all there could be a source of truth element in it that 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 has a problem. Mm. But it's also about are you allowed to actually train your models based on it and some of the big players in the space right now is actually facing a little bit of headwinds because of these kind of things. So so all of that is happening and then there's the ethical element of machine learning models and and AI which will also be impacted by uh, these kind of things. So we 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 have some challenges happening right now uh, specifically around cybersecurity where these models are changing the game um, and of course what's going to happen the same way that 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 the attackers they get access to this kind of technology the good thing is that that we as the defenders also get access to it so many of the things that we're doing also on Hellbage is actually starting to look at how do we utilize 
these AI models and, and capabilities that automation and machine learning is giving to us to have a much more efficient response to these kind of things because there's no doubt that in the future, also with some of the other things that's looming right now like deep fakes and voice modulation and all of these things that's also powered by, by this kind of technology, um, we're definitely looking at some challenges in the future. Certainly there's that feeling of a sort of a race. You know, you've got a race to the bottom on one side and, and a race to, to stop them getting to the bottom on the other side. Do you think that, this is a big question, but do you think that AI can be trained to be ethical? I, I it's probably not me, me that would be, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the AI re researchers would be the ones that's that's looking at that. But I, yeah. do, I do know that there's a lot of, of ethical focus on AI right now. Yeah. And whether we as an industry will be impacting that or whether that will be governments taking care of that, that's, that's something else. I realise I've done a deep dive into the ethics of AI without actually asking you that the most pertinent question, which is how can you avoid being targeted by one of these spear phishing attacks? Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is to understand that they're happening. Yeah. So um, you have to make sure that you kind of have an understanding of how they look and, and they will look very, very good. So we probably have to up our paranoia a little bit in the coming years, right? Um, but the same way that, that attackers, they are utilizing these technologies. I also mentioned that defenders are also doing it. Um, so we will see more and more capabilities coming into these platforms and these these kind of uh, medias that's usually utilized to, to deliver this kind of, of, of content. So email security is developing right now where uh, instead of saying, well, what is was something malicious or not what was the intent of that email is that is that something that is it a person that you've communicated with before and what were you communicating about uh, so that you utilize all of that uh, as to build kind of the intent of, of why is that communication ongoing and and these are capabilities that's being built into platforms right now Wow, we're just going to have to be so suspicious do you know my bank in the United Kingdom tried to contact me recently to verify my identity and you know we still haven't managed to do it because i got to send them like a uh, some sort of lawyer has got to sign a bank statement before i send it over to them they've been trying to connect connect with me for two months and i just presumed it was a phishing attempt yeah. and completely ignored them for two months and it, i was like well you you've got to change your email address like it just doesn't look real no that's that's true right yeah. it's um it's definitely impacting how we think as individuals and how organizations also need to operate, right? I think yeah. any organization today they need to figure out is if their business process is potentially something that could be abused in a um, in a in, in a phishing scenario, right? Yeah. I, I I had a call yesterday from my bank. Well, it wasn't my bank, but in inverted it was, commas, it was it was someone who wanted to get a, a, a my Emirates ID number, right? And yeah. and these scams are happening, right? And and what I think is impo important is that everyone is aware that they're happening so that when someone calls you, you know that your bank would never ever call you to ask you for your Emirates ID uh, yeah. number or your OTP from from Dubai police or whatever kind of scams are happening right now. I'm getting increasingly angry with them when they ring yeah. me. My, in fact, my husband had one on New Year's Day and, and, and he's normally very, you know, he's a lawyer, he's usually pretty impassive on the phone. And he just, he just went for this guy like you are... <laughs> You are. You shouldn't be doing this. It is wrong. You. You yeah. know. You should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, and of course, the, the people just ring off in the end. But yeah. yeah, it is. You have to be constantly aware. The Emirates Post one is very well known. 
as well. Don't pay, don't like, if, if someone texts you, texts you, literally texts you saying you owe eight pence or eight dirhams in customs duties. It's not real. It's not real. Most most likely not. And yeah. and if it was the case, I'm I'm pretty certain that uh, that Emirates Post would uh, would find a way to uh, to charge you in a yeah. different, different way, right? That when you re- when you receive the parcel, then you can pay that that uh, element, right? Exactly, exactly. But but it is the same thing. Yeah, you just have to be hyper suspicious of everything. Uh, really, really fascinating conversation. Uh, a bit of a negative one, but 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 positive because we're teaching people how to avoid it. Uh, Nikolai Soling, thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Nikolai is Chief Technology Officer at Help AG, telling us all about spear phishing. In fact, this is, you know, I do this every time we talk about scams, but if you've seen any recently, do get in touch. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the agenda. Yeah, it is crystal ball time now. That sounds slightly strange when I put the emphasis on the wrong word. Um, Basically, we're marking the first week of a brand new year with a bit of a look ahead to what is to come over the next 12 months. It's a feature that we're doing every single day this week. Who knows? We might push on through into next week if it turns out to be quiet on the news agenda. But actually, there's quite a lot going on. So we might just keep it to this one. And and needless to say, generative AI and robotics, uh, a key focus for us in 2024, of course, set to develop at a rapid pace. Certainly, 2023 felt like a bit of a watershed moment. I think it was, well, it definitely was the moment Actually, it was actually November 2022 when ChatGPT launched. But I think 2023 was was when we all sort of started to realise there was that front-facing element, the consumer-facing side of AI. And we all sort of started to get a little bit of a sense of how powerful it's going to be. Well, let's get a little bit more of a sense because I'm joined in the studio by expert Samir Kashore, who is head and founder of the Virtual Reality Experience Lab at Middlesex University of Dubai, just down the road from us here. Uh, Samir, lovely to have you in. You just walked over, haven't you? Happy to be here, yeah. The, the weather's lovely at this time of year, so I'm happy to walk by. It is glorious. We've just been saying how um, how I need to do more walking. It's nice <laughs> weather. I need to get out in it. I'm trying to make a... Re- That's one of my New Year's resolutions, to try and get out in it more. Um, okay, watershed moment in 2023. Extraordinary growth on this consumer front-facing side of AI. You know, we're already seeing it you know, helping out when we're writing emails, giving us suggestions in Word, for example. I mean, obviously, that's set to develop further this year. But but what sort of specific sort of advances are you expecting? Right. It's it's always a fun exercise to kind of think about, uh, you know, what the prediction or the trend for the new year is going to be. Of course, we're going to base it on what's happened in 2023 and we're going to expect a lot more of it. So even when we talk about uh, automation and AI within these kinds of, you know, uh, uh, fields and disciplines, we have seen 2023 to be a little bit of like a wild, wild west where new things are popping up, uh, you know, every other week, new uh, updates, new kind of innovations with AI and automation. I think what we're going to see now is, at least according to me, a little bit more of, let's say, regulation in some sort of way. We have discussed this in the past as well, but it's still kind of open for all. Everybody's just making their own thing. There is a little bit of push on the ethical aspects of it, but I think we're going to see a lot more of, okay, we know that this technology has a lot of potential. We know that we can. it's it's really powerful, but I guess we now need to see how we can sort of uh, moderate it a little bit because in a sense, the content that we generate with AI is going to 
grow exponentially. And that's where, you know, all our discussions about deep fakes and scams and those kinds of things also come into the picture where we need some sort of moderation and monitoring of how the technology is used as well. We've seen a bit of a backlash, I mean, even just in the last week or so with, for example, the New York Times suing, I think, ChatGPT about uh, over copyright. Essentially, there's strong suggestions. They've got specific phrases that appear to be totally copied from New York Times material. Who do you think is going to lead that regulation? Do you think it's going to be governments or do you think the software companies themselves are going to... Right. Do that self-regulation <laughs> thing that no one really trusts. Yeah, it's a good question. And again, that's the thing that we, we need to see. I can, yeah. We can predict that this will happen. In which way it happens, I guess, is going to be a, uh, an iterative approach as well, where we, we're already seeing, for example, YouTube is being very clear now about their terms and conditions. They've just updated them recently, where they're very clear about uh, whether you're making AI content completely or you're making actual content. There's, uh, there's an updating, uh, I think Instagram have updated their terms and conditions as well, where you do have accounts now that are completely artificial intelligence influencers. So they're not real people. It's just an AI influencer that is doing collabs and doing, uh, you know, uh, shout outs to merchandise and these kinds of things. Uh, There is an updating of terms and conditions where you have to disclose that you're an AI account or a real person. So there's there's already that happening from the software company side of things. But for sure, the EU, for example, is trying to push their AI laws as well. So it's, it's going to happen on both directions, for sure. We've got a huge launch coming this week. This Not this week, this year. I think it's actually this month, isn't it? Because Apple is going to be launching their virtual yeah. reality goggles headsets. Yep. How big an impact is is that likely to have on consumables, I suppose, on the market? Right. So, And that's the other thing that, that I would probably, you know, uh, say with a good amount of confidence that we have OpenAI and GPT that's kind of ruling this whole generative AI market as of now. But we know that Meta is working on Llama is what they're calling it, the large language model that they're producing, which is free and open source for commercial use as well. So the whole, the, the big problem, let's say, with ChatGPT is that it's kind of like a black box where we don't know what's happening and we're sending all of this data to OpenAI. With Llama, you can download it on your computer and work on it offline, right? And the third version of Llama is supposedly going to come out in early 2024. Uh, Apple hasn't really spoken much about their yeah. AI What's either. What's going to be? They exactly. gave it, did they give it a name? I, I can't mean, remember now. Siri is lagging behind uh, Siri the other. Siri is lame. <laughs> Siri is annoying. Yeah, the, the other AI assistants are doing better uh, for sure. But again, we know that Apple has also released another open source uh, large language model, machine learning model as well quite recently. So we're, I'm sure that the big players are going to come in as well. Uh, to provide competition, let's say. But with the Vision Pro specifically, what we're, what I am kind of hoping for as well, because I have a personal agenda here as well, is the, the sort of uh, acceptance, the mainstream acceptance of these kinds of headsets for productivity as well, for productivity and for connectivity. So when we talk about hybrid working and remote working and all these kinds of, let's say, remote collaborations, with these headsets, I expect it to become more seamless. I expect it to become even more effective in some ways. I mean, we can have a conversation about how Zoom is annoying or how we have to turn our cameras on or off and those kinds of things. But with the rise of, let's say, avatar representation in this virtual space and the usage of headsets to feel like you're really with another person rather than just watching them on a screen, 
I feel like my, there might be a little bit of, uh, let's say, resistance initially, but if there's one company that knows how to kind of spread a new technology into the mainstream, it is Apple. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens once the price point goes down as well. Yeah, at the moment, it's about 6,000 dirhams, isn't it? Oh, no, I think 12,000 dirhams. 12,000 yeah. dirhams. Yeah, my children are not getting that for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that is a complete... Next year, they will not be getting that officially. Yeah. Um, Samir, um, we could talk for hours on this. It, it's such a fascinating uh, area of conversation so we'll have to get you back in many times again in 2024 you've been so kind to us in 2023 so thank you very much indeed thank you for having uh, me amazing sort of few things to look out for it does sound exciting though do you mostly feel positive about what's to come I do I, I do good. and and it's it's uh, it, it's always nice to see the technology but as I said the ethics and the regulations have to go hand in hand as well so that's yeah. uh, that is an important bit as well to kind of consider as the technology progresses Dr. Samir Kishore head and founder of the virtual reality experience Lab at Middlesex University in Dubai. Thank you so much for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the programme. This is your agenda, uh, staying on air all the way through until one o'clock. Georgia Tolly here, and we've been talking. I suppose about New Year's resolutions for most of the week. Don't worry, we will stop by Friday, uh, but uh, we do like to mark the New Year on the radio. Um, And if one of yours is to read more books... Well, we found a brand new way to buy novels on the cheap. But you're going to have to act fast uh, because while the Big Bad Wolf book sale has come to Sharjah for the first time ever, you've actually only got one more weekend to go. Uh, It is described as the largest book sale in the world. Let's find out more with the co-founder of the sale, Andrew Yap, who joins me on Teams. Hello there. Good day to you, sir. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell me a bit about... How this book sale first started, because you literally have hundreds of thousands of books for sale, don't you? No, it's more than hundreds of thousands. It's, a more, it's millions of books for sale. Millions? Yeah, yeah millions. How yeah. did it get so big and how do you sell them at such reasonable prices? I don't know, Georgia. If you were to ask me when we first started the business back in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 2009, whether we would be in Sharjah today, I would definitely say no. It was just a small little business. You know, we started off with um, 120,000 books and we have reached our peak of 5.5 million books per event, right? And it just it, it just went crazy. You know, we started in Malaysia thinking that, you know, books uh, are not uh, accessible or affordable, right? And we wanted to make a difference. We had a chance to be able to make books affordable. So we started an event called the Big Bad Wolf Book Sale. And um, it was very successful in Malaysia. We managed to make a big uh, impact on their readership. And in 2016, we had uh, we had many calls, you know, for us to, to go out of Malaysia, right? And uh, we went to our neighboring countries, um, Jakarta, uh, yeah, Indonesia, and Thailand. And there was no turning back after that. You know, uh, we realized that it's not just a problem in Malaysia where books are not accessible or affordable, right? It's a global problem. So currently, we are we sold hundreds of millions of books. We are in 15 different countries and 47 cities around the world right now. I'm a so big... I'm a big yeah, fan yeah. of the sale. I've brought my children down. They've gone wild with supermarket trolleys. Uh, and I have to say, your prices are extraordinary. How do you keep them so low? You know, we're talking about, you know, six dirhams for some books, 
20 dirhams for reasonably new novels that would normally cost, you know, up to 100 in the normal shops. Yeah, so um, even at this sale, right, the, the lowest book is uh, one dirham. And uh, how do we keep our prices low is uh, it's all about volume. And that is also one reason why we had to be in 15 different countries and 47 cities and growing because we need the volume. With volume, we are able to convince publishers that if publishers can sell 15 to 20 more times in volume, they can bring the prices down tremendously. But to the publisher, who is going to do it? Who's going to convince them, right? And uh, most bookstores globally are localized. They are, they are only in their own country and a few outlets. There's also one reason why we had to create this crazy book revolution and, you know, kill ourselves in, into expanding to, you know, 15 different countries, right? We are, we are just a small company, but we, we have single-handedly take, it on, take it, it on ourselves, you know, to show the publishers that through volume, it can be done. What types of books are proving most popular in the UAE? Because I know you do non-fiction, you do fiction, you do children's books, you know, you do everything from cookery to tech. But which are the most popular here in the Emirates? Business and self-help by far is the biggest. So even in the event in Sharjah, yeah, we we have a huge selection of business and uh, self-help. I think also one reason is because, you know, um, UAE comprises of probably 90% um, expatriates, right, or foreigners, and most of, of, of uh, the people go there, you know, to, to, to work, to, to make a living, you know, to start businesses and all, and it's thriving, right? And so books, books like business and self-help is what, what, what people do need, you know, to level up and to keep on improving. Really? And then the, yeah, Dubai is so competitive. I mean, UAE is so competitive. Right. And um, everybody needs to level up. And so books is one place where people go to for quick education. Absolutely. Well, very good news that you're here. Very good luck for the rest of the sale. It is running all the way through until the 7th of January in Sharjah. They are at the Expo Centre there. It's uh, it's free to enter uh, and well worth heading down there. I have, to, Like I say, I've been several times before. It really is a fantastic, very reasonable uh, book sale. That is uh, Andrew Yap, you've just been listening to, the co-founder and managing director of Big Bad Wolf Books. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, right here on the agenda and and no doubt we'll see you back here in another few months i know that the the sales come round fairly regularly here in the uae you're listening to the uae's number one talk radio station this is the agenda with georgia tolly on dubai i 103.8 welcome back to the agenda time now to catch up on all the latest sports headlines joined by robbie greenfield of course our sporting correspondent also presenter of your drive time show off script. Robbie had this update for us. Good morning, Georgia. I'm a bit bleary eyed this morning, I have to be honest, because true to my word, I did stay up to watch Luke Littler, the pizza chomping, Xbox playing, visual appearance age of 36, real age 16, bid to become the youngest ever winner of the PDC World Championship title. The result, of course, I'm sure many darts fans listening to this will already know it, was that it ended in heartbreak. It was indeed Luke Humphreys, the other Luke, the 28-year-old, the senior citizen, who ended up winning in a gripping world title match. It was 7-4 in the end. Littler had his chances. He led 4-2. We thought the dream was still alive. We thought we were going to see something truly historic. 
But then Luke Humphreys really got down to work. He reeled off five consecutive sets and ultimately ended up winning the £500,000 first prize and shattering the hopes of an entire nation, I think, who've been really captured and swept along by Luke Littler. I'm sure he's got a very, very bright future, just 16 years of age, but it was not to be for the precocious youngster from Warrington. Elsewhere in sport, we've seen a crazy day of cricket down in South Africa. I cannot remember the last time we've seen so many collapses, so many wickets, so much drama in the space of just one day. South Africa in their first innings were all out for 55. Siraj took six wickets for the loss of just 15 runs. And in response, India had a wonderful chance to put the match to bed, but they themselves collapsed. They ultimately were all out for 153. Virat Kohli top scoring with 46, but it was a disappointing response for India. And South Africa in response, 62 for three wickets. So dearie me, so many, 23 wickets fell on an extraordinary day in Cape Town and currently South Africa trail by 36 runs with seven of their wickets remaining as we resume play. This thing could be all over in a five-day test match on day two. Quite remarkable stuff. One final thing from the world of golf. Great interview this. If you love your podcasts, definitely check it out. Rory McIlroy has been on Gary Neville's Stick to Football podcast with Ian Wright, with Jamie Carragher and Roy Keane. They've been having a good old chinwag about the state of professional golf. And Rory has, ah, he's made a little bit of a U-turn. He's certainly softened his stance on Live Golf, he's actually said that now he's reconsidered things and he'd like it to be the quote-unquote IPL, the Indian Premier League of golf, as opposed to staunchly rejecting it as he's done so vehemently in the past. So he softened his stance towards Live Golf. He says he's accepted that it's a reality in the sport and that it's now about finding a way to inc in, um, incorporate it into the ecosystem so that everyone can benefit. Fascinating stuff, very candid stuff from Rory McIlroy. You can find that podcast on YouTube. It's well worth a listen. We might play out some clips on tonight's show. Looking forward to bringing you all of that, plus the continuation of Rafa Nadal's comeback on Offscript Extra Time from 7pm. Thank you very much indeed, Robbie Greenfield. Looking forward uh, to Offscript this afternoon from 5pm uh, alongside Sonal and Chris. Robbie will be joining your airwaves uh, for three hours, in fact. <laughs> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.